Maybe we'll go for a walk later. Does that sound good? Okay. Alright, good morning again, everybody. It's good to see you all. A uh, couple quick things. Um, we'd like to mention before, we'd like to have you guys over, if you're free, uh, the Friday before Labor Day. I guess that's not this coming Friday, but the Friday after. You know, kind of like we did last time, have a game day. Just come over and uh, come over whenever, I guess. We'll figure out a time after 6 or 6.30, whenever you're free. Um, we'll play games, hang out, do whatever. And then um, I'd like to have another prayer night, probably in September. Uh, we're going to be taking vacation after Memorial Day. Don't know where we're going or what we're doing yet, but took some time off of work. Memorial Day. Labor Day, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah, labor means go back to school, right? Yeah. <laughs> but um, So we'll figure that out, but just so you guys are aware of the, those couple things. Uh, we're going to be in Acts chapter 6 today. Um, it's a shorter chapter than what we've been in. And uh, the title of the message for today is called Good reputation a good reputation and we'll see why in a minute uh but reputation i looked it up um and just the standard dictionary definition of reputation is the estimation in which a person or thing is held especially by the community or the public um, a man of good reputation uh, a favorable repute a good name uh, or you can also ruin that reputation by misconduct uh, a publicly recognized name, standing merit, achievement, reliability, um, or to build up that reputation. You know, you don't just get a reputation overnight. It has to be built up. Um, uh, the estimation or name of being, having done, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, we all kind of know that. You know, you have a reputation. Um, and it doesn't just happen overnight. Uh, usually it has to come by a lot of hard work or a lot of examples of, of you living up to that reputation or a deserved reputation. But we see that in politics. A lot of uh, political ads are all about smearing someone else's reputation. Look how they voted on this, and look how they changed this, and look how they said this, but then they did this, and this is the type of person they are. You know, it, they really don't spend time building up their own reputation because they know they're just as bad, so they just spend time trashing the other guy to try and bring them down. Or at work, you know, uh, we recently hired a few new people. And uh, one of the guys was somebody that worked with somebody um, at another agency somewhere. And before he came in, he really talked this guy up. And so far, he's panned out. Um, you know, we heard that he's a good worker. He, this is family guy, such and such and such. And so before he even came in the door, we already had an impression of him. Before he came in, we already knew sort of what he was like. And we already had a favorable liking towards him because we knew who he was in a sense. We didn't yet know him, uh, but we had heard about him because he had a good reputation. Um, or even your friends, you know. Hopefully your friends are of good repute that when you're out and you get pulled over, you're not worried about who's in the car with you and what they have in their pockets. Uh, I was coming back from youth group, uh, I guess it was a year ago, and I had one of the, the guys in the car with me. He was one of the youth, but he, he was out of high school, so he was kind of one of the leaders. But he loves pocket knives. <laughs> he took, we went to Great Adventure once, and he had like a really long blade, <laughs> blade on him. And he's not a violent kid or anything, but he just likes knives. And... Uh, they wouldn't let him in. He's like, but it follows this law and this law and this law. I'm like, no, you can't have it. So I got pulled over coming home, and uh, it was late at night on a Friday, and the cops are always out. But uh, uh, I didn't end up getting, getting a ticket. I think uh, what he gave me, he gave me something. It's for something for my license, which 
he was neither here nor there. It was like he was just trying to find something. But uh, I was like, Sam, you don't have any knives on you, right? Like joking around with him. Like, am I going to go to jail tonight? <laughs> but uh, no, seriously, you know, even in the worldly sense of a blind date, you know, someone's going to set you up and give you a reputation. Oh, this person's great, blah, blah, blah. And they show up and you want to run away. But I think it's the same thing, you know, maybe if you hear a certain company name like Enron, what do you think of? Or uh, maybe Google, someone with a better reputation, or sports teams, or sports figures, or sports names. Um, you know, all these scandals that happened lately, or maybe someone who run, did the Super Bowl, or hear Tim Tebow. I even like football. I'm like, I think I'm going to become an Eagles fan because he's playing on the Eagles now, you know? Like, that's awesome because he's got a good reputation. Or infomercials, you know, they kind of have that bad reputation of being an infomercial product. But really, you know, what are we known for? What are you and I known for? How would our friends describe us? Would we have a good reputation preceding us? Uh, how would our coworkers describe us? You know, as believers especially, do we have a good reputation in the world? When we go out in the world, do people think of us as, oh, here comes so-and-so, hide your wallet, here comes so-and-so, you know, whatever. Um, or is it a good thing or a bad thing? Oh, here comes so-and-so. I know he's going to be a big help. But what does the world think of Christians today? When the world thinks of a Christian or Christianity, is it a good reputation in their mind? Is it a bad reputation in their mind, right or wrong? I'm not saying that all the things that the world thinks about Christianity are Christianity's fault. Sometimes the world is just sinful and they don't like Christianity because, you know, what Christianity stands for. But you think of these cult groups that get a better name than Christianity because they tend to walk out what they believe more, right or wrong. Um, but our name precedes us. Our name will precede us. Uh, we have a reputation whether we like it or not. I think a lot of times people move around the country or move away to try and get away from their life or get away from their reputation. And sometimes that's a good thing. And other times they're trying to escape and, and the reputation catches up with them because we really are our reputation. You know, um, Sometimes you may get a bad rap, um, but really I think a lot of it is based on, on how we behave and how we act and, and how we handle when, when we do mess up. Do we just cover it up and say, I had no idea, plausible deniability, or do we, do we take um, responsibility for when we've done something wrong? But last time we saw in Acts that there was jealousy with the religi religious leaders. Uh, the apostles got thrown in prison. The angel broke them out. They shared the gospel. And the, the point of it all was should they obey God rather than man? And, and obviously we know the truth of that, that they should obey God. But today we're going to be in Acts chapter 6. We're going to be introduced to Stephen. We're going to see about the deacons being um, ordained and the first deacons and what that even means to be a deacon. And uh, the, the run-up really to chapter 7, which is a much longer chapter. It should probably take a little while to get through, but um, it's looking to be a good one. Uh, but really, let's start out in chapter 6 of Acts and we'll read the first seven verses together. Uh, now in those days, when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists, because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. Then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, It's not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, who we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, 
and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch, whom they set before the apostles, and when they had prayed, they laid hands on them. Then the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. We see here, uh, in those days, when the number of the disciples was multiplying, that their number was growing. It wasn't just being added to, we see them still multiplying. That more and 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 more people were multiplying. We were talking about teaching our kids addition at a young age before uh, the study. And you think multiplication. I remember my dad gave me a spreadsheet of multiplication tables to memorize. And it was so hard in the beginning. But then finally I got it. But um, here we see that the believers are growing. They're growing exponentially. They tell two friends, and they tell two friends, and they tell two friends, and so on and so on, to where the church just keeps growing, and it's growing healthily. And I think that part of that healthy growth is that it, it, they say it's the number of disciples. It's the number of disciples. And that word disciple is a learner, a pupil. It's a disciple. In high school, believe it or not, I took Latin for four years. I took Latin two for three years, but I took Latin for four years. Um, it says a lot about where I was in high school. But... Our teacher, uh, Magistra, which means teacher in Latin, called us Discapuli. Salute, Discapuli. It was salutations, good morning, disciples. And that's what we were. We were people who followed and learned. And, and back in the day, I think it was a clearer picture where someone was a disciple of someone else. You know, you obviously you followed them around. John had disciples. Jesus had disciples. These guys were disciples where they followed the person around, they learned from them, um, they learned how to live, they learned their doctrine or their philosophy, uh, if it was uh, more of the Greek philosopher idea. But really, that, that's what a Christian really is. It's someone who's a disciple. We're following the Lord, we're following other people and their examples as they follow the Lord. We're learning from them, we're growing from them. And it's, it's not just a spectator sport that it's become, I think, uh, in a lot of ways where you come, you sit down, you stand up, you sit down, you stand up, put your money in the box and you leave and you go about and do your business for the week, but that your whole life is a life of learning. You know, they say that uh, you should be learning your entire life. And, and I love to learn. There's things I've always liked to learn. I watched PBS as a kid on purpose because there were things I wanted to learn. Um, and then when it came to school and I didn't want to learn it, I wouldn't learn it. So I wasn't very disciplined in that way. You know, we think of disciple and discipline are very similar words and they should go together where it's a disciplined learning. You know, we're going to agree to something, we're going to learn something, we're going to follow something whether we agree to it or not because we know that this person knows uh, more than we do. Um, but really that we would learn and we would live a lifetime of learning. And in fact, in my field in computers, I have to keep learning. And I'm sure it's the same for some of you in your fields that you have to keep learning because the things that you knew 10, 15 years ago are probably obsolete today. Like flash is going out of existence very quickly, right or wrong. I won't get into the technological argument, but flash was huge 15 years ago. You know, now it's just banner ads, but flash was big and I know flash and I actually had to program something in flash the other day and it was kind of fun because I had done it a long time, but I realized there's other things I need to learn. You know, I'm always trying to stay on top of the different technologies because if I don't, I'm going to be left behind. So in a sense, I have to be a disciple of what's going on in the web in those technologies if I want to keep working in that field. Um, that sort of goes in everywhere. Um, you know, stay up with the trends and uh, stay up with what's going on. Uh, but sincerely, to be a disciple is someone who follows the Lord, someone who learns from the Lord, and it's a lifestyle. It's your life. You know, you're saved by God, so you're going to be a disciple. And I think that that's why they had healthy growth, because they were making disciples. You know, Jesus said, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. And what does that mean? That means bring people to the Lord, 
baptize them, teach them how to follow the Lord, teach them what the Bible actually says, teach them how to live, help them actually live the Christian life, that they might grow up and then make disciples for themselves. It's like having kids. You know, I have kids, I love them, I hang out with them. I joked sort of on Facebook about being a dad is like being in a, a children's ministry party all the time, and I love it because there's times all day I get to play with them. I also have to discipline them. I also have to tell them to go to bed or whatever, make them eat their dinner when they don't want to eat it. But also there's a whole lot of fun in there, and there's just situations throughout the day when I get to teach my daughter, like about, she asked about her belly button, like why does she even have one? And got to explain to her that used to connect her to her mommy, and that's where she got food. And that when she was in there, uh, you know, she was a tiny baby, and God was making her, and she was smaller than the corn we were eating, and she was, like, amazed by it. And you know, we have these opportunities to to teach and to share in a formal way, where, me, these are your A, Bs, and Cs. But at her age now, it's, you know, even throughout all life, hopefully, there's those little fun opportunities that come up. You know, you think of being someone's apprentice. Uh, not so common nowadays people are really more about themselves but when you think of trades you have to be an apprentice if you want to be a carpenter or a plumber most of the time you go and you work on the job and then they raise you up and eventually when you've gained their trust they might let you do something else or a blacksmith or things like that and that's really kind of what it is it's really the older believers teaching the younger believers it's the older men raising up the younger men it's the older women raising up the younger women in relationships and it's let's do life together it doesn't have to be a formal you know, uh, in youth group, we had formal D groups where uh, every leader or every couple leaders would have a couple guys or girls that they would disciple. And it wasn't, um, it was formal in a sense where we met every week, but it was informal. Like we'd get together, we'd read the Bible, we'd do a group study together, but we'd also go out and we'd have a, a camping trip every year. We'd go out and have dinner. We'd go out and do these other things and just hang out and play video games and just live life like an older brother or like a father type figure to these kids who needed it whether they had godly dads or not you know it was just an extra input in them you know if they had deep questions and they had a godly father we'd say hey you should really talk to your dad about that you know you're going through this thing in life that you shared with me yeah i'll give you my advice but i bet your dad has some great insight for you um, and other kinds they didn't really have a dad that was there for them in that way so we got to give them advice that yeah we're not their dad but in a way we were able to give them godly advice and that's what discipleship is, that you're doing life with someone else. It's not this rigid, formal, you're my disciple, sit in class, and I'm going to beat you over the head with the Bible. But, hey, man, I love you like a little brother, like the Bible says. I love you like a father. Would you help me? You know, it can be formal, but I think informality helps a lot in this. You know, and sometimes it can be they pick you out. Sometimes it's just natural. These are people that you're around and, um, you know, those people that I would consider spiritual mothers and spiritual fathers in the same way like little brothers and little sisters. But um, basically, they were having this healthy growth. And as they were growing, and as they were taking care of the people, and as the body kept growing, more needs kept coming in. There were more and more and more needs. And what they were doing was every day, they were giving out to those who were in need. They were giving out to the widows. And some widows were being uh, overlooked. And these widows that were being overlooked were those of the Hellenists. And the Hellenists were basically Jewish people who were born in Greek culture or lived by Greek standards to where they were ethnically Jewish, but, um, you know, they spoke Greek, they looked Greek, you know, went in Greek, do Greek things. But um, sincerely, they felt kind of left out. I think there probably was some sort of gap there. If we look at Jewish culture, we think of the Samaritans who they consider, quote unquote, half-breeds, where they were looked down upon because they weren't fully Jewish. I think maybe there was a disconnect there too, where all the people who looked Jewish were coming in and, and maybe it wasn't even on purpose, but they were missing out on these people who didn't look Jewish, but were still Jewish. Um, who were coming in to have their needs met. Um, but there was a complaint. 
And I think that's the first thing to see that maybe there's a problem. The problem is sometimes it's with the complainer. You know, if a person's just generally a complainer, they're probably the ones that have the problem. But sometimes the first time that we see about uh, a need is when someone complains. Um, but they complain, hey, you guys aren't meeting our needs. Like, why aren't you doing this? And I think part of it was that, hey, the needs aren't being met because they're growing so much and there weren't enough people to do it. I think people wanted Peter. They wanted uh, Thomas. They wanted all the disciples to come in and, hey, that's the disciple of Jesus. That's an apostle. I want him to meet my needs. I want him to be the one to answer my questions. I remember a lot of times up in New York where even when, we, uh, when the church was bigger, when there were a lot of pastors on staff and a lot of people available, all could give godly counsel. All were there appointed by God for godly counsel. People would just want to talk to the senior pastor. People would like, oh, you're free. I'm going to go wait for him. And yeah, I, I get that in a way, but it's like there were other people there that were available to meet the needs, uh, but people are so focused on the man instead of Jesus. Instead of Jesus. But here we see that these guys um, were meeting the daily needs of the widows. And James 1 26 and 27 says, You guys probably know this. If anyone among you thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useless. Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. That they were doing the ministry, that this was the ministry, meeting the needs of people in need. That they would get together, they would pray, they would study the Bible, they would worship, they would evangelize, they would do the things that the church does. But what was their core ministry? Was it bowling night? Was it, you know, singles ministry? Not that those things are necessarily wrong. They ministered to different needs, but they had this need of a lot of people who were physically needy and they met their needs daily, daily. You know, I think of um, a friend's church in upstate New York that did uh, something called the Yeshua Fest. Uh, I lived in Orange County, which was about an hour, hour and a half north of New York City. Um, so, and the further north and west you went of New York, the it got really rich on top of North Jersey, and then it started getting poor when you got up in New York. The further you went, went up, and he lived in the next county up, and the next county up was like very poor. Like most people couldn't make it down to the city, so whatever few jobs were up there, a lot of people from the city. There was a lot of housing up there for people who were homeless or didn't have jobs and things like that. Um, and so it was a very needy area. And my friend had started a church in the area. And every year they did this thing called the Yeshua Fest where uh, they would go out and our church and other churches down in the counties that had you know more money where we had, you know, not that we were rich by any standard, but we had more, uh, our needs were met and we could meet other people's needs. They, we got water, we got food, um, backpacks for school. We did around the end of the summer where we filled up a backpack with notebooks and pens and pencils. And we did an outreach. It was like a carnival. There were games, there was free clothes, free stuff. We'd raffle these things off because the need was so great, we couldn't possibly give a backpack to everyone. Um, but a lot went out. And uh, God provided buses, God provided other people in favor with the town. And uh, it was just amazing. But um, as we'll see that, uh, you know, other things like that, our church did homeless outreach and uh, men's ministry where if people had needs in the body, they could come and say, hey, I've got this need. I'm, you know, I'm old. I can't rake my lawn. Can you guys come over and rake my lawn? Or can you cut down this tree in my yard? And, and that turned to be out a good thing. But I think that the church in general has largely neglected these needs ministries. Um, they become something to make people feel good. Uh, as opposed to actually meeting a need. Like, oh, look, I brought in a pair of socks and I feel good. I've done my good thing for the year. And not to knock that, but really I think that we've really gotten disconnected with the actual needs in our, in our community. And I'd love to see the Lord 
use us as a group to meet the needs in our community um, as, as he leads and as he guides, whether it's just personally or whether it's corporately. Um, you know, I'd love to see our church uh, financially bless other ministries, bless missionaries, bless other churches in the area. Uh, even if we have needs to be able to do this, you know, I think in a sense, it's like God asks us to tithe, asks us to give. So why wouldn't the church be one that gives to other ministries or people in need? Um, and obviously that's in time and, and that's as the Lord leads. But I just hope that at some point we don't get disconnected from what's going on around us. Or even if that's now that we get reconnected to it. But I think that this lack in the church where people don't think in their minds, you ask the world, where do you go to get your needs met? They say, oh, I go down to the unemployment office. Or they say, oh, I go down to Goodwill. And, you know, Goodwill probably started by Christians. Salvation Army started by a Christian. Good organizations come up out of Christian causes and, and start out in Christian ways. And I think that that's awesome. But I think that the church should meet those needs as well. There are a few churches up in New York that I knew of that did that, that had large pantries or large things that they would open up once or twice a month. Uh, my friend in Indiana has uh, one of the churches, I guess his brother goes to, they're real close to like a a sports drink manufacturer and a cereal manufacturer or something like that. But they have this big warehouse and they set it up like a supermarket where they get all these donations from people in the church and even businesses that do it. And they set it up. So it's not like I'm just handing you a basket of food and you a basket of food, but there's not that there's less dignity in that, but people can go in and, and they go in and they can pick what they want. And they, Oh, I want this type of cereal. And Oh, I, I like, I need spaghetti sauce, but I don't need noodles. You know, they go in and they basically go shopping and what's the price of admission? They get the food, they have their stuff, and then they hear the gospel. They're given a Bible message. They're given an opportunity to receive the Lord. And then, God bless you. Have a good day. That's it. We're open. It's free. You can come here if you need anything. And I, and I see that and I get like, man, that's, that's awesome. The, the community should know that. But I think out of that lack and out of that need, uh, people have turned to government. People have turned to, and not that, you know, government in a sense shouldn't be doing that. I think it's great that a government wants to care for the needy. Um, but I don't know that they're really equipped to in the same way that the church would. I don't think that the same discernment is there. But people have turned to things like the social gospel, which isn't really the gospel at all. It's socialism. It's let's meet people's needs and we'll put the gospel aside. Well, that's not really the case. The greatest need that people have is the gospel. And if we're going to spread the gospel, sometimes physical needs need to be met. And if we're spreading the gospel, well, physical needs should be met in the wake of that because the two go hand in hand. You know, true relationship with God meets others' needs, physical, mental, emotional, spiritual. You know, you come to church, your needs should be met. Maybe not your wants. You know, maybe the message isn't as good as you want. Maybe the couch isn't as comfortable as it should be. I don't know, but your needs should be met. Over the long run, your needs will be met. There should be friends there. There should be good teaching there. There should be a time of worship. There should be fellowship. But hey, if you're down and out, you should be able to get prayed for. If you're down and out, someone should realize that and say, hey, can I give you 20 bucks? Can I take you out to lunch? Can you know, stay with me if you just lost your job? You know, These things should naturally be happening. Again, like the discipleship, it doesn't always have to be, hey, can we do this kind of ministry? Well, do it. Get around. Talk to people. Get to know people. And I think it's, you know, that, that becomes more cloudy when there's more people. And I think that's probably what was happening here. There's so many people here that it was getting very cloudy that how do we take care of these needs? How do we meet these needs? And the disciples say, it's not desirable that we should, uh, the apostles, excuse me, say, it is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. And you could read that and go, man, those guys are getting full of themselves. They're spreading the gospel and they don't want to wait at the table. They don't want to meet the needs. And, and I don't think that's how they're saying it. 
I don't think they were unwilling. I think that they were willing to do it and willing to do it so much that it began to pull on them to where now, like as we'll see in a minute, they're not able to pray. They're not able to spend time studying the Bible. They're not able to spend time doing the things that only the apostles can do um, at this point in time. And that it was better that others take care of it. Again, like there's only a certain number of pastors, teachers, etc., um, to go around. You know, everyone wants to talk to the senior pastor, but there's 10 other pastors who are maybe even more spiritual than the senior pastor who are capable of meeting their spiritual needs, but they just want to go there. And even then, these guys, the pastors are meant to meet the, the spiritual needs of the people, and the leaders are meant to meet uh, or oversee the physical needs of the people, and they kind of work together. You know, if you think back to Moses, where Moses was leading all the people, and he's sitting there all day and night deciding what's right and wrong. They're coming to him with their problems. Yes, no, yes, no, that's not right. Give that back. Uh, you know, you know, it's like one leader in a children's class. You kind of need an assistant. Otherwise, you're going to lose your mind no matter how loving you are because they're all coming to him. And, and what, did, uh, what was the advice I got, I think, from his father-in-law Jethro and even from the Lord that, hey, you need other people to help you out. Set people over 10, set people over 100, send people over thousands. Get guys to oversee these things and you oversee the overseers. Because if they're godly and they're making the right decisions, you're gonna see that and you're gonna make sure they're in the right place. You know, Moses, it's time for you to be upper management, so to speak. Because uh, Jesus said to Peter in John 21, 17, he said to him the third time, Simon, son of Jodah, do you love me? Uh, this is after uh, Jesus was resurrected and uh, before Peter had been restored and Peter was grieved and he said to him the third time, do you love me? And Peter said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Basically, like, I want to love you, but you know whether it's true or not. And Jesus said, okay, feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. If you haven't, you know, if you love me, feed my sheep. Give them the Bible. Give them the scripture. And that's the pastor's main ministry is to feed the people of God, the word of God. That yes, a pastor should be willing to clean the toilets. A pastor should be willing to change oil in someone's car if they know how. If not, don't touch it. But you know, they should, they should be able to willing to do these things. There shouldn't be a disconnect because what's the real role of a pastor or a leader is a servant. I mean, Jesus washed your feet, so, so should the leadership. But at some point, if the pastor's main ministry of feeding people the word is being neglected, well, He's not doing a very good job of being a pastor. And that's why God raises up other disciples around the disciple of a pastor to begin to meet the physical needs. Because maybe they're not prepared to meet the spiritual needs. Maybe they're not prepared to give a Bible study. Maybe they've got other struggles in their life that they're not quote-unquote qualified to do it yet. But they will be maybe one day. And, then, and they, maybe they learn in the small things to not despise the day of small things, as the Bible says. But other people can take care of those other ministries. You know, not that it's less important. Not that cleaning toilets is less important. You know, you come to a church on Sunday and everything's overflowing, you know, you're probably not going to stay for the Bible study. <laughs> it stinks in here. I'm out of here, you know. And we had that happen on plenty of times. You know, uh, you'd see one of the guys running around with a, a plunger. You'd see the senior pastor running around with a plunger. Like, no, bro, let me take that. You go talk to the people. Like, that would happen. But sincerely, that... It's, it's not more important, but it's right that people take care of the right needs. You know, you want the people who are good with the kids to be in the children's ministry. You know, you want the people who know how to make coffee to be in the cafe ministry. You want the people who are called to these things to be in the right places at the right time. Um, not that you can't learn how to make coffee. Not that you can't learn how to be good with kids or maybe it's something that God has to grow in you. But the point being that, hey, you know, God has a plan and a purpose for everyone to fit into the right spot that it would work like a not just a well-oiled machine, but a healthy living organism. 
And again, it's about discipleship, that all these things are working together in discipleship to raise up people. You know, an older children's ministry leader leading up someone who's new in the children's ministry, someone who's older in the cafe raising up someone who's new in the cafe, someone who's older in the ministry raising up a younger pastor in the ministry. You know, that these all are working together in this, like I said, living organism where it's living and it's loving and it's growing. But again, you know, it's discipleship. It's like raising kids that, you know, kid may want to do something, but he doesn't want to do it yet. So you got to teach him how to do it. But I think it's interesting. It's very important to point out that these quote unquote waiters who were basically waiting on the needs of these widows couldn't be just anybody. They couldn't say, hey, you, you know, you've got two hands. Come over here. <laughs> you know, it, they had to have certain qualifications. Um, and I think the most important qualification that the Bible would show us is that they were full of the Holy Spirit, that meeting these practical needs needed just as much Holy Spirit as meeting the spiritual needs, that they both needed to be full of the Holy Spirit in order to meet the needs of the people, that just because it wasn't, quote unquote, a spiritual duty doesn't, doesn't mean that. It, feeding someone's practical needs in a godly way is a spiritual duty. I remember a pastor said once years ago, and I don't have it there anymore on purpose, but there was a sign on the fridge that we had in the guy's house that I was living in when we, around the first time I got saved, of this quote that said, sometimes it takes more Holy Spirit to do the dishes than to give a Bible study. Sometimes it takes more of God's leading to be obedient in these little things and these servant tasks and to do them right and well than it does to get up and, and share the Bible. In a sense, because, you know, in a sense you can maybe fake this. Um, I mean, you'll know it if it is, but man, a real servant is one who's, who's doing the things that, that don't get any glory is, I guess, the point I'm getting at. But again, there was only a certain number of pastors and there was plenty of these other guys, but they had these qualifications. Um, and the point of that qualification is that they cannot serve the Lord in their own strength, even when it came to a simple task like putting a tablecloth down. Because you come into church and someone's putting a tablecloth down like, oh, oh, slopping it on the table and, you know, you're going to go, oh, I don't know about this. this you're going to have a bad taste in your mouth. But you come in and, you know, after women's ministry on a Saturday, uh, we'd come in and you know that it, was after, it wasn't youth group that left it that way on Friday night. It was a women's ministry. Tablecloths would be out, flowers would be up, decorations would be up. It would look so nice. Um, and that's the same way. You know, when they came in, it had to be people who wanted to be there, who felt, man, this is my purpose, serving God by, by serving these people, uh, because it changes everything. But verse 3 says uh, that they sought out men of good reputation. I think it's very important that these guys that they were picking to serve the people's needs were representing God. And they had to be have a good reputation that when they were out there, you go, wait, didn't I see you at the bar last night? Aren't you in the mob? You know, how are you serving here? I think that that's very important that, you know, why, in a sense, not just anyone can serve. Anyone can serve. You come to the Lord, you repent, spend time with the Lord. You know, uh, in New York, we had, I think, a six-month waiting limit. I think that's a calorie thing. Uh, basically, it's not really a punishment. It's just come, just come, just get ministered to. You just get blessed for a while. And, and as you see fit and as you get raised up and we get to keep our eyes on you and see, make sure you're not completely crazy. You know, you have to be a little crazy, but make sure you're not completely out there and you have a good reputation. Well, let's just start serving. You know, absolutely. Mostly anyone we'd let in and come in and serve back where I was serving in the media ministry. That's how I got involved. You're hiding in the back. No one has to know you're even there. So your reputation can be a lot less and be back in the booth than it was at the door. But, um, and again, not for external appearance, but for really, hey, let's keep a good reputation about this. Let's make sure these people are serving God and serving others. Uh, but these men chosen, they were a good reputation. Uh, they were full of the Holy Spirit. 
Um, they were full of wisdom. So they, you know, as Proverbs would say, they would have discernment and they could say, hey, it's the right thing to do. It's the wise thing to do. Um, I don't know if you've ever been in a meeting, probably, but you go, man, is there any wisdom in this meeting? You get done with an hour long meeting and said, what was accomplished? And other times you're in a meeting with the people who are wise or one guy who's wise in there and you go, yeah, all right, we've had this meeting. We can make a decision. We can go forward. And how important that is when you're overseeing something that can be as messy as serving thousands of people every week and every day. But that these guys were appointed over and able to lead and make leadership decisions. And I think that that's key, that the leadership saw in these guys that, hey, these guys, they don't have the badge that says leader on them, but they're already leading. They're already leading the people. They're already serving the tables. They're already wanting to take care of these people. And I know that when they get into a situation, yeah, maybe they're you know a little green or wet behind the ears or whatever the saying would be, but I know that they're able to lead and make leadership decisions and own up to those leadership decisions and take responsibility for them. But sometimes it's obvious that when we see people who can make decisions and who cannot, sometimes it's obvious you're around someone who's in management and you go, I don't know how you got to be in management. Or you're around and you see someone, yeah, they're a really good manager. You know, I've had good managers or bad managers and most of my bosses throughout my entire life have been really good bosses and I'm thankful for that. Um, but sometimes people who want to be in leadership, who want to be there, who think they are management material, so to speak, you go, oh, no, I don't think so. You know, uh, why don't you start with cleaning the toilets and we'll see how you do there. You know, partly because, hey, can I come up and teach on Sunday? They'd come up to a big church first time there. Oh, why don't you go clean the toilets? And it's not so much as to put them down as to say, hey, you, you can't just walk in and take over the place. It's not how it works. You know, hey, you're here and you're serving. We see the Lord in your life. Sure, you can probably, we'll raise you up and you can take over the church, whatever. I mean, that's the thing. You know, people come in and they have this high mind about themselves and sometimes it has to be broken. But a lot of times those who are good at leading don't even realize it that they are, especially if they don't have an office like a quote unquote deacon or pastor yet. They're out there serving the people, loving the people. And you say, hey, do you want to be, do you want to take over this area or would you like to do this? And they go, really? I don't know. Am I even qualified already? Like, yeah, you're doing it already. You go, really? They don't even see it. They don't even see it because they're so busy about serving God that they don't see themselves in there. And we can see a lot of successes and failures in life. Um, based on people put in the wrong circumstances or the wrong positions uh, because either they weren't qualified, they had a bad reputation, or they just weren't cut out for it. And not that that makes someone better or worse if you're cut out for it. It's just God gives different gifts. You know, there's the gift of um, uh, administrations. Hey, some people God just gifted to be organized. Some people God just gifted to take over a task, and, and some people he hasn't, and that's fine. That doesn't make one person better than the other. It just says, hey, you go clean out the closet. <laughs> you know, <laughs> that's all that is. But how important it was that it was listed first, that they have a good reputation, because I guarantee you can be full of the Holy Spirit and have a bad reputation that you just haven't walked out enough of this Holy Spirit life yet to have built back up a good reputation. But they had a good reputation. I think that's important. Why? Because I think that they would, in part, at least on a physical level, be listened to, be respected, and be a good example internally and externally. That I think everyone can respect a good reputation. Someone comes in with a good reputation, it's almost automatic you respect them because they have a good reputation. Someone comes in with a, eh, I don't know, reputation, you go, eh. All right, depending on your, your circumstance in life. But um, really, the whole point of these guys serving and having a good reputation was to bring glory to God. And we'll see how that happens in the long run here. But the immediate practical purpose was to free up the spiritual leaders to lead spiritually in prayer and ministry of the word. 
that those two things, if the spiritual leaders aren't doing those things, nothing's going to get done. Yeah, things might be okay, but if the pastors aren't praying, if the leaders aren't praying together, if the leaders aren't studying the Bible, if they're not being discipled themselves by the Lord and by other leaders, there's probably going to be trouble. There's probably going to be, um, you know, a, a staleness there. Um, but again, practical leaders can lead practically, but they still need that spiritual leading. That bold jobs, again, are spiritual jobs um, or spiritual callings. You know, I, I definitely don't think of being a pastor as a job. Um, it's certainly a calling and one that um, I hope I don't take lightly. But here they set up the first deacons, just like uh, sort of the apostles. But they were set before the apostles. They figured out that these guys were the guys. They knew them by name. They each had a good reputation. They said, hey, what about Stephen? What about Nicanor? What about uh, Timonus? What about Philip? What about these guys? Yeah, these guys are good. Let's get them together. Let's bring them for the apostles. And what do the apostles do? They give them a name badge? No, they, they lay their hands on them. They pray for them. Why? Because it's an ordainment. It's a calling. They're not pastors, they're not elders, they're not apostles, they're deacons. And I think that it's very important that deacons realize that it is a calling. I mean, yeah, it's not as magnanimous as maybe you might think, but in my mind, it is. In my mind, it is. I remember being set up as a deacon early on, getting saved. They asked me to be a deacon. I turned it down because I was going through something. And then I came back a couple months later. And uh, actually, I didn't come back. They came back and said, hey, you want to be a deacon? I said, yes. <laughs> please, you know, and I took it very seriously because the things of God had a high rapport, had a high respect in my mind um, uh, at the time, and I hope they still do, where I think of these roles and I go, man, they just gave me the key to the church. They're letting me count the tithe. They're letting me, you know, walk in here and clean. They trust me with these things, you know. There's a deacon attached to my name, and I'm only so and so years old, you know, that it was very important to me. I, I took it in high regard and, and a lot of my friends became deacons too. We were all deacons sort of together and there was this rapport, hey man, you're my friend, but we're serving God together and it was awesome. Um, in the sense of, hey, yeah, we're not the guy in the front, but man, we're, we're on the front lines and it was cool. Uh, and it's not a light thing. You know, I had a friend recently become a deacon and I, when I was visiting New York, um, we were talking about it and, uh, he was like, man, I don't know if I should take it or not. And it was the same thing. I'm like, bro, like you're doing it. Like you're doing the work. And I think that that's important that, that you're so, quote unquote, unsure of it because you know what a high calling it is. And I've had other people say to me, oh, deacon's not a big deal, even pastors. And I'm like, yeah, it's a huge deal. You're, you know, quote unquote, official ministry at this point. And it's not for the people. It's that God would say, hey. I want to put a name tag on you and not that it's more important, but I think that, you know, that there is something important about that, that there is a reputation that comes along with that. There is a recognition that comes along with that as fleshly as it may be, that it's important. And there were other guys who I saw that didn't really have that same reverence for it. And, you know, it was evident. They didn't serve as diligently when the, 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 the sheet came around to sign up to do things. Eh, I don't know. Eh, you know, and then the other guys who were reverent for it, we're filling out all these days. You say, no, 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 you don't have to take all those days, bro. It's okay. You know, you saw that there was this different heart in it. And, uh, you know, and I don't know all the circumstances. Sometimes things come up. I'm not mean to lay a trip or anything, but sincerely that these things are important. Whether we're serving God with a title or not, we should come to it and say, um, man, this is important. And we're going to, let's turn to 1 Timothy 3 real quick. A uh, couple books to the right after Thessalonians. 1 Timothy chapter 
I just want to read the first 13 verses, even though the 8 through 13 is specifically about deacons, because verse 8 says likewise. And so I want to go back a little bit and hear what it says. And, and this letter from Paul to Timothy is about being a pastor and, and how to handle things. And I think it's great for everybody to read because uh, we're all Christians and we're all um, in leadership one way or another. But he says this in verse 1, This is a faithful saying, If a man desires a position of bishop or leader, or elder, pastor, um, he desires a good work. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior, hospitable, able to teach, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not covetous, one who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? We see in Acts they're taking care of the church of God. Not a novice, lest being puffed up with pride, he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. Moreover, he must have a good testimony among those who are outside, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. That it's good to desire these callings, um, but our lives should match up to it. Uh, likewise, deacons must be reverent, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy for money, holding the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience. But let these also first be tested, and let them serve as, then let them serve as deacons, being found blameless. Likewise, their wives must be reverent, not slanderers, temperate, faithful in all things. Let deacons be the husbands of one wife, ruling their children and their own house as well. For those who have served well as deacons, obtain from themselves a good standing and great boldness in the faith, which is in Christ Jesus. That they've served well as deacons, they obtain a good standing. That when you serve as a deacon well, that man, that's a good reputation. That when you stand, you know, Lord, you've given me this task. I'm living up to it. I'm, I'm by your strength. I'm doing it by your spirit. I'm leading that man. That's a good reputation that man, I've earned something in a sense, earned something with the Lord that like, man, thank you, God, that I know that I'm going the right way. Um, but they set them up. They set them up. And uh, sorry, I just lost my place in my notes here. <laughs> But it says that they were first tested, that they were first tested, that these guys who were deacons, it wasn't right away. Paul says in other areas of the scriptures, don't lay hands on anyone too quickly because you want to see what they're about. You want to know what they're about. Like, I feel like I know you guys, but still, I feel like you guys know me, but there's still, you know, time will tell. Time will tell who each of us really are. Um, and I think I'm seeing that. And the more I see you guys, the more I love it. Um, but really, sometimes someone comes in and you don't really know who they are and then you make them a deacon too quickly and then they blow it or they mess something up or something goes wrong. Um, and by mess something up, I mean something catastrophic. I don't just mean, you know, putting something in the wrong drawer. But <laughs> we see also the importance of their wife, that the person that they're married to is just as important to them, that there were guys in our fellowship, who, man, they would be an awesome deacon, but they're married to an unbeliever, that they got married when they weren't saved and... You know, their wife is really just a hindrance to them. Um, not that they weren't there, but it's like they'd want to come and serve and they were totally able to serve, but it would their wife would just give them garbage all the time and it would really cause a ruckus in their home and their wife wasn't really for the things of the Lord. And then other times there was guys who, hey, their wife was an unbeliever and she was fine with him going out and serving and it wouldn't be an issue and they would do it, you know? But again, that their wife had to be in the right position, that there's this importance, that there's this connection there. Um, again, because... If we can't take care of the things in our own house, take care of the things in our own house, how can we take care of the things of God? You know, if my wife wasn't as gracious as she was and wasn't as willing to serve the Lord, you know, there's no way we would have moved down here. If 
you know, if I married, quote unquote, the wrong person and she didn't want to follow the Lord, you know, I'd have to go out and get another job and get her diamond rings and a fancy car. You know, my wife is so in love with the Lord that thankfully I don't have to do that, you know, almost to uh, a negating on my part. But really that they had to have an outside witness that was important again, that when people looked on, they say, oh, yeah, this guy's a good guy. It makes sense. Oh, yeah, I know him. But verse 7, what was the fruit of this reorganization and ordination that the word of God spread and that the number of disciples multiplied greatly, that things weren't going to grow, things weren't going to happen until this reorganization happened, that it realized they got to a wall where they said, all right, we've done as much as we can, we need to reorganize a little bit, and now we're going to grow even more. And again, not for the purpose of growing, not for the mindset of growing, but for the mindset of taking care of of people's needs and that this wouldn't have happened if the apostles weren't able you know you think of churches that at at one sense that hey man if the pastor doesn't come on full-time staff you know things aren't going to grow as much because he's he can't devote as much time um i'm not saying that's us at all at this point or whatever um it may never be but really at this point in them it was time for these guys to go full-time and just spend time in the word and prayer but again it's not a one-man show the one-man show is Jesus. Uh, it's about everyone doing what we're called to do, whether you're a pastor or whether you're the janitor or whatever. Um, it's about feeding the sheep physically and spiritually. And we also see that the priests are now becoming obedient to the faith. I think that's awesome that these guys who were once obedient to the law, now that they see the church living out their faith and being what the church is supposed to be, these guys are coming to faith in Jesus. And again, um, just to touch on James, obedience and faith are intertwined. I don't think these guys could claim to have the faith that they have in the Lord if this ministry didn't exist. And I don't think this ministry would exist if they didn't have the, the faith that they did. Um, you know, you read James, that's pretty much what it's all about. But let's go on and read these last uh, few verses here quickly. Um, and verse 8 says, And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. Then there arose some from what is called the synagogue of freedmen, the Cyrenians, Alexandrians, and those from Cilicia and Asia, disputing with Stephen. Verse 10. And they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. Then they secretly induced men to say, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him, seized him, and brought him to the council. They also set up false witnesses who said, This man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against the holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs which Moses delivered to us. And all who sat in the council looking steadfastly at him saw his face as the face of an angel. You know, Stephen was one of the deacons. He was full of faith and power. But just a deacon? No way. This guy was not just anything. He was full of faith. You know, I think of guys that in the youth group or kids even, and I go, man, this is not just your average kid. This kid loves the Lord. I see God's hand on this kid's life or this young uh, boy or girl's life. Or even leadership, man, you just see God's hand on certain people. Not that he picks people over other people per se, but that people are just more submitted to him, you know. Um, but again, we see religious people doing what? Rising up against real ministry. Real ministry is going on. What happens? Religious people get offended get upset. You know, in the Yeshua Fest, the local churches in the area hated it. They said, well, what are you doing? What are you doing? Uh, what do you mean, what are we doing? You know, like, this is our turf sort of thing. Like, give me a break. These people have needs. You're not doing it. We're not here to step on your turf. We're just loving on the people. You know, be a part of it with us if you want. I think it's interesting that when they got into the argument with, with Stephen, these guys got no argument. 
they got no argument. Stephen gives him the truth, and they've got nothing to fight him with, his, both his character and his words. And it reminds me of last chapter with Gamaliel, where he said, hey, this is of God, guys. You're not going to be able to fight it. You're not going to be able to do it. You know, when the Mormons came to my door, and I was rebuking them in a loving way, giving them the scripture, every point they had, it was like, well, the scripture says this. They bring another point. Well, the scripture says this. Bring another point. They go, oh, you know your Bible. I was like, I know I'm going to get on your blacklist, but, you know, a side note, these Alexandrians later on with the Alexandrian text were a very liberal theological group. You know, if you have an NIV Bible, it comes from a very liberal theological movement, which we won't get in, into for time. And, and not that there's anything totally wrong with it, but there's certain things that are cut from it. But he couldn't win with their spiritual arguments. They would bring a spiritual argument to Stephen, and they would lose. So what do they do? What do we see them do here? They try and slander his good character. Our arguments aren't winning, so what's the only thing he's got going for him? His good character. Let's try and slander him. Let's try and slander him. Isn't that true? Isn't that true? That anytime you've got uh, good words going on or your life is going in a good way, someone's going to try and slander you. Like we talked about in politics or ministry, rumors will come out. You hear about the pastor doing that or that church doing that. That's not even true. And it's coming from another church. Like, what's going on? And I think the point here is that when we don't trust someone, we're not going to believe their message no matter how true it is. You know, I would share the truth with people of the gospel before I even believed the gospel because I was reading it and seeking it and they wouldn't believe it, you know, because I didn't live it. And who knows if they believe it now? We I mean, think of the story of the boy who cried wolf. He keeps crying wolf. He keeps crying wolf. And then, then what? The wolf's there and no one actually believes him because his reputation is so broken. I think it's important that we need to have a good reputation in order for the gospel to spread. If people are going to come to faith in Jesus, yes, it requires the Holy Spirit. Yes, it requires the gospel. And those things are two paramount things that will overcome anything. But it really helps if, if we plowed the ground with a good reputation and a good life and, and really actually physically ministering to people. You know, when I'm at work, I tend not to be very outspoken about my faith. You know, if, if there's an opportunity that comes up, I'll share. If there's something else that comes up to share, and, and maybe I'm wrong in this sometimes. Maybe I should be more outspoken. But the point of at least hopefully some of the heart, I mean, some of the heart, obviously I'm scared sometimes, but it's like, there's a spider here, is that I want my reputation to be good. I want my life to be one that, hey, when I'm digging and plowing with this person, as I'm trying to be nice to them and trying to care for their needs and trying to listen to them and be their friend even when they're not friendly, is that when that opens up a door, when I share the gospel with them, when I share something about Jesus with them, that they'll want to receive it, that they'll want to hear it, that I'm not just all talk. And maybe I'm not enough talk. I'll, you know, I'll be the first to admit that. But again, we see these religious guys who are all talk, and or no action get mad when the guy whose walk matches his talk, they've been, they begin to bring him in, they seize him again. And that's a pattern. We see this pattern so many times so far in just six chapters. People living out their faith, them getting brought in by the religious people and brought before a council. You know, uh, they're going to want to bring you to court. Uh, Darwinism is religion, guys. Atheism is religion. Being politically correct is religious. Uh, I mean, just listen to this secular definition of religion. It's a religion is an organized collection of beliefs, cultural systems, and worldviews that relate humanity to an order of existence. Many religions have narratives, symbols, and sacred histories that aim to explain the meaning of life, the origin of life, or the universe. And that's what those do, guys. They say, oh, we don't believe in a god. Well, your god is you, or your god is Darwin, someone who explains life to you. Not that there's not micro-evolution, or not that there's not growth or the possibility of millions of years in creation. I don't necessarily believe that. I believe in literal six days. 
But you don't have to believe that to be saved. You know, it's not something that got me saved. What gets you saved? Jesus on the cross. But it's like, where are you defining your right and wrong? Where does that definition come from? Where does your origin of life come from? We see that religious people are, are all over the place. They say separation of church and state. Well, that's not what it means. It just means keep the state out of the church, not the church out of the state. Um, and we see, again, there's religious people in the government, but they're just not Christians. But we say they set up false witness. And we've seen this before with Jesus. You know, aren't these guys religious guys? You know, don't they know commandment number nine in Exodus 20, 16? You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. I thought these guys were religious, but they're not even following their religion. You know, Deuteronomy 19, it was the priest's job to sort out what's true and what's false. You come before the priest, the priest goes, you're a real witness. You're a false witness. He was the judge. He was CSI. And you know what? They had discernment. And that's what these guys had with the Holy Spirit. You have discernment. But these religious guys had none of it. And as far as our reputation goes, we need to be careful not to be a false witness. There's a lot of verses in there about being a false witness. One, Proverbs 6.19 says, A false witness speaks lies, one who sows discord among the brethren. Someone comes in, tells you a lie about someone else, and what does it do? Oh, I don't know if I like that person anymore. I don't know if I trust that person anymore. They sow to seed of discord and there begins to be a crack. And the enemy loves when that happens in the church because the church gets divided over those things. Proverbs 19, 5 says, A false witness will not go unpunished, and he who speaks lies will not escape. I mean, think of these guys bringing false witness against the preacher of the gospel. When they go to die, they've brought false witness against their only hope. So they're going to be punished. They're not going to escape that judgment that God wants them to, be, to escape from. You know, even Jesus said, For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witnesses, and blasphemies. That out of a wicked heart comes a false witness, and that's Matthew 15, 19. Nothing will ruin your reputation faster, I think, than gossip and lies and false witness. You know, you might be a good worker, but you come around gossiping around someone else, it's going to ruin your reputation because, man, words tend to paint things real quick, tend to muddy the waters real quick. And I don't think Stephen felt out of place because in Mark we see in 1456-59 that there are many false witnesses against Jesus. Um, you know, that they even brought uh, Jesus' real words against them. They said, we heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and in three days I will build another made without hands. You know, but even their testimonies didn't agree that these liars didn't agree. You know, that's how cops tell... Uh, try and get to the bottom of the truth. When they have someone in custody, they split the two people up and they get the stories from both of them. They get the stories from the witnesses and they begin to, to sift through what parts match up, what parts don't match up. Oh, I thought you guys were friends and he just said you just picked them up. I thought you guys were cousins and he said you were, you know, brother and sister. You know, he begins to see these differences here. But there were false witnesses, you know. And maybe were these things true that they were saying against Stephen? Maybe in a twisted way, the customs aren't changed, but they're fulfilled. The things that Stephen is about to share with us in, in chapter 7, we'll see that, man, God is who he says he is, and that means you're free from the law, but um, they twist it. And that's what anyone does is a false witness. They're going to twist your words to come against you when you said nothing wrong. You know, they'll take it out of context. And our last point here is that his face was the face of an angel. Man, I, your face might be the face of an angel when you're getting married. I don't know. But when you've got people saying bad things, false things against you, you're brought in front of a council, you're arrested, 
You know, aren't you the one to be like, all right, the one to be like, hey, that's wrong. You're totally lying about me. That's not true. What are you doing? Or is our face the face of an angel? You know, I don't know what that looks like. You know, is it glowing? Is it smiling? Is it just totally at peace? Probably. Um, but it's innocent. It's innocent. You know, uh, Jesus was stayed quiet when they were bringing accusations against him because they were wrong. You know, and I think that speaks that our witness to a false witness is just as important as our witness to a right witness or our witness to our reputation. That we don't want to ruin our reputation when someone's trying to ruin our reputation. When someone's trying to ruin it for us, we don't need to take it from them and do it for us. You know, I've had people say things about me and I go, what? That's not even true. And, you know, I don't need to go around and find everyone that they've said it to and try and defend my reputation. God can do that. God will do that. You know, Chuck Smith has said, you know, God would, would let him defend himself if he wanted to. But how much better it was when he let God defend him. And I think important, if we have ruined our witness or we have said something we shouldn't have or we've done something wrong to ruin our reputation, that if we repent and apologize and seek God to make these things right, that our reputation will be restored um, sometimes even more. You know, I think people like someone who... Uh, Someone who's a goody two-shoes all the time, they, they kind of get a little concerned about it. Oh, they've got to be fake. There's got to be something wrong. And if you're a goody two-shoes all the time, good for you. You know, I, I think that that's fantastic that, you know, by the Lord you can do that. But I think also people respect someone who's messed up and who can own up to that mess up and, uh, and come out of it. Um, but, man, it's so much better to not mess up in the first place. And as we close, you know, next week we're going to hear what Stephen really believes. As the high priest says, hey, is this true? And it opens up all these verses for Stephen to share the gospel. And again, you know, Stephen was put in a hard situation. There were lies told about him. He was brought to court. He was brought against all these people. And in fact, he's like, hey, I could be out ministering tables right now. I'm just a deacon, right? You don't need to hear the gospel from me. Let me get it from Peter. But what does God do? God brings up this guy who's not just a deacon. And we'll see him uh, bring good reputation to the Lord and uh, to the gospel. So, Father, we thank you for your love. And we thank you that, uh, God, you are of perfect reputation, that no matter what anyone says against you, it never sticks because it's not true. And as many people have tried to destroy the witness of the Bible and of Christianity, and even Christians ourselves who have um, blown our witness or done something wrong, God, you're gracious enough to forgive us, and you're also more powerful than that and bigger than that, that, God, you live forever. And, God, we pray that you'd help us to be a good witness. You'd help us to have a good reputation uh, both individually in our families, at work, with our neighbors, but also as your children and as a body of believers. And that, um, God, people would see um, uh, our good witness and want to see you and that they would see you. And God, help us to open our eyes to the needs around us, God, that we might begin to meet them as, uh, as God, you would lead us to, God. And uh, just bless our day and this week, and we ask for your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.